Hello, and welcome back to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, joined by my co-host, Winston the Cat. Every other week, Winston and I will bring you a new story about a murder, disappearance, or a serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown, the Pacific Northwest. Just a reminder, this podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to True Crime Cat Lawyer for episode number 10. In case you missed it or you don't follow us on social media, we have merch available. Our store will be open until December 18th. We have t-shirts and sweatshirts with a special design featuring Winston herself as a true crime fighting lawyer. If you're interested in purchasing our merch, head over to bonfire.com slash true crime cat lawyer by December 18th. One more announcement before we get started with today's episode. This will be our last official episode for 2020. We're taking a break for New Year's so Winston and I can get all moved into our new house. But don't worry. We will be back on January 7th, 2021. And while we're on our holiday break, we still plan to release at least one tidbits episode and at least one mini episode. Okay, with all of that out of the way, let's get started. Today, I have two stories for you. And unfortunately, as with our last main episode, we aren't going to get any resolution. Sorry, guys. For those of you who like resolution, I promise we have some good cases lined up in the new year. But for now, we're headed up to Washington to cover the disappearance and murder of Lindsey Baum, as well as the disappearance of Deanne Hastings. I'm going to start with Lindsey's story. So Lindsey grew up in Tennessee, but she moved to McCleary, Washington with her mom and older brother Josh after their parents divorced. According to Lindsey's mom, Melissa, Lindsey was bright, active, and happy. She was a mama's girl who was afraid of the dark, but absolutely loved Harry Potter and Twilight. There wasn't much more information about Lindsay's background in my research, but it seemed like she was a relatively normal kid, even after her parents' divorce. At the time of her disappearance, Lindsay was just 10 years old, although she was just a few days away from turning 11. On June 26, 2009, Lindsay spent the afternoon at a friend's house where there was a pool party. It was the beginning of summer and the weather was hot, so what better way to cool off? Her friend Michaela's house was only a few blocks away from Lindsay's house, though it's not clear to me if Lindsay walked to the house by herself or if she was dropped off by her mom. Lindsay had planned to have Michaela stay the night at her house for a sleepover, but Michaela's mom had said no. I'm sure Lindsay was upset as she went to make her way back home. On the way, around 9.15, Lindsay crossed paths with her brother Josh, who was on his way to a friend's house for a sleepover. This was the last time Lindsay was seen. Melissa, Lindsay's mom, expected Lindsay to be home before dark. Remember, Lindsay was afraid of the dark, and Melissa said there was no way she would be out by herself in the dark. So when Melissa noticed that it was getting dark around 9.45 and Lindsay still wasn't home, Melissa started calling around to neighbors and friends to see if Lindsay was with them. She also tried calling Lindsay's cell phone a few times. Melissa admits that at first, when Lindsay didn't come home right away, she was more annoyed than anything. I think we often want to hope for the best outcome and sometimes think bad things can't or won't happen to us. But unfortunately, those of us who are interested in true crime know better. 
putting myself in Melissa's shoes, I think I would be kind of annoyed too. Being annoyed that your daughter forgot to tell you she was staying over at a friend's house is much better than the alternative of thinking something bad happened to her. Melissa eventually found Lindsay's cell phone at her house. Lindsay hadn't taken it with her to the pool party. According to Melissa, this wasn't unusual. Evidently, there had been times in the past when Lindsay left her cell phone at home in order to have some time by herself. But as it got later and later, Melissa's annoyance faded to worry and concern. She and other neighbors searched around the neighborhood, but there was no sign of Lindsay. At around 10.50 that night, Melissa called McCleary police. The next day was a Saturday. Police and search volunteers performed larger searches that morning. Again, they didn't find Lindsay or anything else that might have led them to where she was. Police appeared to take Lindsay's disappearance pretty seriously from the very beginning. There was no history of her running away, her 11th birthday was just a few days away, and nothing seemed to be out of the ordinary in her young life. It wasn't clear to me if police looked at Lindsay's dad as a suspect, but he was actually getting ready to deploy to Iraq at the time of Lindsay's disappearance, so it kind of seems unlikely that he would be involved. In the days and weeks following Lindsay's disappearance, police learned that Lindsay told her mom that a man in a white car had been following her before she went missing. Melissa also told police that the day before Lindsay disappeared, she had a premonition. Lindsay told her mom that she had a feeling something bad was going to happen to her. 24 hours later, Lindsay was gone. The case went cold relatively quickly. Police didn't seem to have any leads on what happened to Lindsay or where she was. Four months after her disappearance, in October 2009, police publicized a search warrant they'd obtained for a man living just outside of McCleary. I didn't see his name anywhere, but the search warrant alleged that he made inconsistent statements to investigators and engaged in suspicious activity, including disturbing conversations about Lindsay, and previous sexual assault allegations. But I probably couldn't find his name anywhere because police didn't find any evidence related to Lindsay's disappearance or any other crime in his house, so he was likely cleared as a suspect. Lindsay's case was featured in People magazine in 2010. In May of the same year, the Grays Harbor County Sheriff's Office released surveillance video clips to the media. The video clips were taken from a Shell gas station in McCleary from the night of Lindsay's disappearance. One showed a white truck and the other showed a man entering the convenience store at the gas station. Police said the man in the video wasn't a suspect, they just wanted to talk to him to see if he had any information on Lindsay's case. The man in the video was Tim Hartman. He was a local business owner who lied to the police when they initially interviewed him. Before police obtained the surveillance videos, Hartman told them he wasn't in McCleary on the night Lindsay went missing. But the video clearly shows Hartman making a purchase, then leaving the store and heading in the direction of the area where Lindsay was last seen. I'll post links to the videos on our website, truecrimecatlawyer.com, so you can watch them for yourselves. 
Police said he actually helped Melissa look for Lindsay on the night she went missing. Police said Hartman actually helped Melissa look for Lindsay on the night she went missing, driving Melissa around to areas where she thought Lindsay might be. In October 2011, police served search warrants on Hartman's business, his storage unit, and his home. But if they found anything, they didn't tell the public. Investigators were only willing to classify Hartman as a person of interest, not a suspect. In 2012, police released additional surveillance video from a mini-mart in McCleary, again from the night of Lindsay's disappearance. Investigators had this footage since the beginning of the investigation, but they opted not to release the video until they could conduct further investigative efforts. In the video, two women are seen talking to Hartman. Police were able to identify the women as two sisters from the McCleary area. Hartman has denied any involvement with Lindsay's disappearance, and he eventually stopped cooperating with the investigation. An age-progressed photo of Lindsay was released in June of 2013 by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, four years after Lindsay disappeared. There were no updates or leads in Lindsay's disappearance until September 2017. A couple of hunters were out in a remote area near Ellensburg, Washington, when they found a small piece of a human skull. The partial remains were identified through DNA as belonging to Lindsay Baum. Ellensburg is nearly three hours east of McCleary. So how exactly did Lindsay end up all the way out there? The area where her partial remains were found is heavily timbered with steep terrain and large cliffs and deep ravines. Just going off the description of the area, it seems like the person who killed Lindsay was either familiar with the area and knew it was super remote and difficult to navigate, or they got super lucky and stumbled across it. Extensive searches were conducted over two weekends after Lindsay's partial remains were found. Nearly 200 volunteers and law enforcement officials, along with 22 canine teams, were involved with the searches. If anything was recovered, investigators didn't share it with the public. Banners were hung up throughout Grays Harbor County and McCleary, though there was some controversy over the banners after the signs were changed to read, quote, do you know who murdered me, end quote, once Lindsay's partial remains were recovered. Some members of the community didn't think these posters should be put up near playgrounds or parks, but Melissa, Lindsay's mom, disagreed. She thought children and their parents should be aware of the dangers out there, especially since Lindsay's killer was still at large. The most recent update came in 2018. It's not clear to me how exactly the Emery brothers came onto police's radar, but the three brothers were initially investigated for their connection to a child porn investigation. At the time of the investigation, the brothers were in their 80s. Investigators searched their property in Shelton, about 30 minutes from McCleary, where one of the brothers was living until 2016. During their searches of the multiple properties, police found disturbing and staggering amounts of child pornography, children's clothing and underwear, newspaper and magazine clippings of missing and murdered girls, toys, 
and a, quote, manifesto, end quote, which detailed satanic rituals as well as kidnapping, raping, and killing young girls. Despite finding all of this disgusting shit in the Emery brothers' homes, police didn't find any connection between them and Lindsay's murder. Around 2018-2019, a private investigator from Seattle named Rose Winquist offered her services to Melissa Baum pro bono. Winquist works with her husband, who's a former homicide detective, as well as their two sons and a Seattle attorney named Ann Bremner. After conducting her own independent investigation with her team, Winquist has compiled a list of 20 persons of interest. She believes whoever kidnapped and murdered Lindsay knew her and is local to the McCleary area. According to Winquist, the suspect is likely a male who was in his 20s at the time of Lindsay's kidnapping and murder. She's hopeful that additional remains and other evidence can be located near where Lindsay's partial remains were originally found. Winquist appears to have a cordial relationship with law enforcement, although investigators have made it clear that while they might hold back information or evidence to protect the integrity of the investigation, they fully expect Winquist to share whatever information she uncovers with law enforcement. According to investigators, there have been several persons of interest over the years, and while no one has been completely exonerated, none of these persons of interest have risen to the level of a suspect in Lindsay's case. More than 20 search warrants have been executed, nearly 40 polygraph tests have been given, thousands of hours of searches have been conducted over the past 11 years. Police say Lindsay's case is still active, but it doesn't appear that they're any closer to figuring out who took her and who killed her. If you or someone you know has any information about the disappearance and murder of Lindsay Baum, please call 206-229-5055. Hey guys, are you thinking about starting your own podcast? If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me give you the details. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. The next case I'm going to cover is the disappearance of Deanne Hastings. Deanne grew up in Nevada with her parents and older brother Carson. Deanne and Carson were extremely close when they were growing up. When Deanne was in the fourth grade, the family moved to Spokane, Washington. According to Deanne's mother, Patricia, Deanne transitioned well after the move and was relatively happy. But that all changed in 1996. Deanne's parents divorced and her father moved out of the family home. At the same time the divorce was going on, Carson was getting ready to leave for boot camp in Texas. Both Carson and Patricia said something changed in Deanne after the divorce. Some of her behavior could be explained as general teen angst, but her family insists that it was something more. When Deanne was 17, she became pregnant with her son, Hayden. 
His father was Deanne's high school boyfriend, and the two dated on and off for a while after Hayden was born, but they couldn't work things out long term and eventually ended their relationship. According to her family, Deanne struggled after this breakup. She was a great mom to Hayden, and she loved being a mom, but Deanne's mental health was not doing well. She began having manic episodes where she would get violent and start cussing or verbally abusing those around her. At times, she would disappear for a few days in order to get her head straight, and because she was incredibly embarrassed of how she would act during these episodes. Things got so bad that the family decided Hayden would live with his dad so that Deanne could start medication and try to get her episodes under control. Deanne was eventually diagnosed with bipolar disorder. After receiving her diagnosis and starting medication, Deanne moved to Texas to live with her brother so she could have a fresh start. In the disappeared episode I watched, Carson said Deanne was doing really well in Texas. She graduated from nursing school and eventually married a man named Brandon. They had two kids, a boy and a girl. Things were going really well for a while, but Deanne's bipolar disorder was always in the background, and eventually the couple divorced after nine years together. Because of Brandon's deployable status and Deanne's mental health struggles, the couple decided Deanne and the kids would move back to Spokane to live with her mother, Patricia. Once Deanne and the kids moved to Spokane, Deanne entered into an inpatient treatment program in Idaho. She wanted to get help for her bipolar disorder so she could take care of her three kids on her own, and her family was super supportive during the whole process. Deanne maintained a good relationship with all three of her kids, even though they didn't live with her. She constantly spent time with them after school and on the weekends. When she finished her inpatient treatment and returned to Spokane, Deanne once again found herself starting over. She enrolled in cosmetology school and began seeing a man named Mike Tibbetts, whom she met through mutual friends. The pair eventually got engaged and moved in with one another. On November 3rd, 2015, Deanne attended her first day of cosmetology school. When she got home, her son Hayden's girlfriend, Melissa, came over so the two could do their nails together. Melissa was upset because she and Hayden were taking a break, so Deanne consoled her and reassured Melissa that Hayden would come around. Melissa left around 9.30, and she later received a text from Deanne saying that she loved her and she would see her soon. Deanne then left a note from Mike that said, quote, ran to store, just got done doing girls' nails, had a great day, end quote. At around 11.30, Deanne still hadn't returned home, and Mike began to worry. According to him, the store was about a three-minute drive from their house, so Deanne shouldn't have been gone very long. When Mike drove up to the store, he found that it was closed. He started tracking Deanne's phone, which I'm not really sure how he was able to do unless they shared an Apple ID or something. Anyway, he tracked Deanne's phone to a parking lot in downtown Spokane across the street from a concert venue called The Knitting Factory, which wasn't near the store or their house. There was no sign of Deanne around her car, and when Mike tried calling her cell phone, he realized it was locked inside her car along with her purse. Mike didn't have a spare key to get into Deanne's car, so he proceeded to wait by her car all night hoping she would return to it at some point. 
Unfortunately, she never did. On November 4th, Mike called the cosmetology school to see if Deanne was in class, but she had failed to show up. The director of the school offered to help Mike make flyers, and they began handing them out in the areas near the store, Deanne's house, and the school. Mike found out that the store, Lata Trading Company, had surveillance video near the checkout lines. He asks to review the footage and is told that he can come back in a few days to look at it when a manager will be available to assist him. This is super frustrating. As we all know, the initial hours and days of a missing persons investigation are critical, and making Mike wait days to look at this footage is a huge waste of time that you can never get back. In the meantime, Mike officially reports Deanne as a missing person on November 5th. In the Disappeared episode, the detective on Deanne's case straight up said, missing persons cases are a, quote, lower priority, end quote, for them because they usually resolve themselves. I get that from a resources perspective, we can't roll out the search parties every time someone reports a missing person. And not to shade the police too much here, but I truly think that Deanne's mental health history probably played a role in how the police treated her case. It wasn't clear to me whether the police knew about Deanne's bipolar disorder initially, but it seemed like once they were made aware of it, they sort of chalked her disappearance up to her past behavior of going off the grid and disappearing for a few days. Here's the thing, though. Every single one of her family members and friends that were interviewed for the Disappeared episode said she always told them when she'd be gone and she always had her phone with her in case there was some kind of emergency. After all, she was a mother to three kids and she loved those kids. So after the police are super unhelpful, Mike goes to review the surveillance footage from the store. Deanne is seen at the cash register purchasing what would later be identified as a pint of vodka and a couple boxes of birthday candles. Mike said she was acting really disoriented in the video. She seemed kind of frazzled and kept looking behind her and looking over her shoulder. Once the media got a hold of the story, witnesses would come forward stating that they saw Deanne outside the store acting strangely and erratically. Two women said they tried to offer Deanne a ride home, but she refused and told them that she had been drugged. The same two women called Spokane police to perform a welfare check. When police arrived, Deanne didn't want to speak with them and eventually walked into the grocery store where she would make the vodka and birthday candle purchase. The officer watched Deanne for about 30 minutes, during which time she observed Deanne enter the grocery store, exit the grocery store, and walk toward a coffee shop. According to the officer, Deanne didn't appear to be a danger to herself or anyone else, so the officer left. An employee of the grocery store contacted Mike and told him that he met Deanne at a bar on November 3rd. He offered Deanne a cigarette, and the two drank and smoked marijuana together. This man denied hooking up with Deanne, but said the two of them spent the night at his apartment. The next morning, he drove to the store with Deanne to get cigarettes, and while he was inside the store, Deanne left. The man found Deanne's keys in his car and gave them to Mike. Mike said he had a weird feeling about this guy, so he actually went to his house, and the man let Mike search around. 
but nothing was found. Once Mike had the keys to Deanne's car, he was able to retrieve her purse and cell phone. There were no unusual calls or texts on her phone. Police obtained a search warrant for Deanne's cell phone records and found no suspicious activity. The last outgoing text she sent was to her son, Hayden. She told him she had a good first day at school and she hoped he was proud of her. Between November 7th and November 12th, there were several hits on Deanne's credit cards throughout the Spokane and Spokane Valley area. Unfortunately, when police pulled the surveillance footage from the stores where the cards were used, it was clearly not Deanne that had made the purchases. Police took still photos from the surveillance videos and released them to the public. They were able to identify one of the men as Randy Riley. Riley had a criminal record, a history of drug use, and he was homeless. Police were able to track him down after Riley's prior landlord contacted them to report she had seen Riley with Deanne and another man around the time of Deanne's disappearance. The landlord said Deanne was lying on the ground and appeared to be intoxicated at the time. Deanne apparently walked to a storage facility and surveillance video obtained from that storage facility shows her walking around with Riley and another man. Police bring Riley in for questioning on November 25th. He identified the other man as his friend James, and he said the two of them hung out with Deanne and all three were drinking together. Riley claims Deanne gave him her credit cards so he could get something to eat, but then he later changed his story and said that he found Deanne's coat on the side of the road and took her wallet out of it. The area where James, Riley, and Deanne were walking was just 300 yards away from Deanne's house. Police searched the area with cadaver dogs, helicopters, and heat sensors, but they didn't find Deanne, her clothing, or any other evidence. Riley was arrested for second-degree identity theft, but he denied any involvement with Deanne's disappearance. Several weeks after Deanne's disappearance, her driver's license was found outside Sonnenberg's Deli, about 10 minutes from where her car was found. As with most cases where a missing person has a spouse or significant other, police looked at Deanne's fiancé, Mike. Police said Mike never turned over Deanne's cell phone or the note she left as evidence. One of Deanne's friends claims that Deanne and Mike were having relationship issues, and Deanne was actually planning on leaving Mike. Apparently, Deanne sent her friend some texts saying that she thought Mike might have drugged her. Mike denies any relationship issues and claims that they got along well and never fought. He said he didn't want to give police the note and cell phone because he didn't trust that the police would give it back to him. Mike did say that Deanne became increasingly paranoid in the weeks leading up to her disappearance. She thought her neighbors and possibly Mike himself were poisoning the water supply. She began having more manic episodes that Mike said would last up to two hours. In the disappeared episode, Deanne's brother Carson said that Deanne's health insurance had recently denied paying for the bipolar medication she needed. 
Deanne appealed the denial and even submitted a note from her doctor stating that she had tried other medication in the past but needed this specific one to no avail. The insurance company denied her appeal. Mike offered to pay for the medication Deanne needed out of pocket, but the insurance company told him if he did that, they would drop Deanne's health insurance coverage. So at the time of her disappearance, Deanne had been off her medication for nearly six weeks. In 2016, Randy Riley's friend James reached out to the Facebook page created for Deanne. He told Deanne's friend Amanda, who was in charge of running the page, that on the day he hung out with Randy Riley and Deanne, Deanne had gone up the hill to go to the bathroom. Riley followed Deanne and was back in the bushes for about 10 minutes. James said Deanne never came back down after Riley. He claimed that he didn't know Randy Riley very well and denied any involvement in Deanne's disappearance. According to James, Deanne was heading home after she went up the hill to go to the bathroom. Police eventually searched Deanne and Mike's home with cadaver dogs, but nothing was found. The grocery store employee who spent the night with Deanne quit shortly after her disappearance and moved back to Florida. Randy Riley was sentenced to almost 13 months in prison for identity theft related to Deanne's stolen credit cards. Deanne's oldest son, Hayden, married his high school sweetheart, Melanie, prior to joining the military. Deanne's family says there's no way she would have missed out on Hayden's graduation or his wedding. Deanne's case remains cold five years after she went missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance or whereabouts of Deanne Hastings, please contact Spokane Crime Check at 509 477 2233. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com and you can find us on Twitter at truecrimecatlaw and on Instagram at truecrimecatlawyer. You can also find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for truecrimecatlawyer in the group section. If you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.